This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Have you spent any time in the metaverse? If right now you're thinking, well, what is the metaverse? Then we have a story for you because you know what? In some ways, we're kind of already living in the metaverse. Now, our next guest is going to tell us all about that. Megan Garber is a staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine and has written all about this. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. First of all, how do you define the metaverse? Well, there are lots of different definitions to use, but the one I use is simply this notion that entertainment can be made immersive. So, you know, I often think about the headsets that you put on to access virtual reality, augmented reality, that kind of thing. And often what the metaverse entails is this notion that you can essentially live within your entertainment, live within illusions that someone else has created for you. And just like you said, I think we don't actually need the headsets to access that world. I think we actually are in a lot of ways living within that sense of immersive entertainment. Do you have some examples of that? What kind of shows would you mean? Oh, sure. So I think so one of the one of the um, things that will often come up in dystopias, for example, um, is something like the feelies in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, this notion of television that can that you can feel itself. And I think that we actually have a version of that. Now we have news that is often filtered through entertainment, through dramas, through comedies um, and, you know, video games, a lot of examples, but effectively this notion that the lines between entertainment and the real world of hard facts and hard histories is becoming blurred. Right. Because some of these shows too, that you're talking about, they're, they're, they're based on history, right? So we tend to think they're real, but they're not. Exactly right. And often what will happen is very recent history will get metabolized effectively as a drama. You might look at a show like The Crown, for example, which, you know, stars characters who are still alive, who are still living their lives. The Crown is effectively a biopic, but it is about history that is in many ways still happening. And so I think that's a great example of of this blurring where what is history and what is the dramatization of history? And that line gets very blurred very easily right because shows that you know we believe those and then people think that is that is actually what it is right and then they're always shocked to find out that there's actually more to that story than what they saw on tv (laughs) and i found myself feeling like that too where i watch something like the crown and sometimes i will google and try to find out if the scene that i just watched as a semi-history actually did happen and it can be very hard to determine whether it did happen or not so you're left i think as a viewer with a little bit of a um, an uncertainty about what is actually history and what is an invention meant to tell a good story and how much of a role does social media play in all this I think social media plays a big role. One of the the things I'm trying to argue with with my story is that social media kind of um, blurs the distinction between not just entertainment and everything else, but also between 
human beings and characters. I think there is a way that social media encourages us to see each other not as fully human, you know, complex and deserving of empathy, but instead as characters in this ongoing grand show. And I've certainly experienced that myself as a user of social media, I felt that um, sometimes when people will respond to something I say, it doesn't feel often like they are responding to someone they see as fully real. They're responding to, you know, the trope of a journalist, um, you know, right. a character in general. Yep. Has it made us, do you think, Megan, I don't know, more difficult or more challenging for some people to just face like reality? as it is because of all of this other stuff that makes it feel like that's real and what is what, what's actually happening to them is not real. I think so very much. Um, you might look at something like the term crisis actor, for example, which is often um, summoned to explain away news stories um, when there's a mass shooting, for right. example, there will always be a contingent of people that say, oh, that didn't actually happen. This is just a performance. This is fake. And you see that idea often playing out in conspiracy theories in general, where the, the logic of entertainment and theater will be used to explain away a tragedy that people probably don't want to face as, as a real thing that has happened. It's almost like people want to live in some kind of virtual world, because if they're there, I, I saw this recently with the DeMar Hamlin situation too, right? People yeah. believing that that wasn't really him waving at the crowd. And, all, and I thought, why? What is the point of making up <laughs> stuff about that? I don't understand. Exactly. And I don't fully either, but I would say that I think there is something very reassuring about this idea of, oh, it's just fake. You know, it means that you don't have to accept things as they are. And the things in question are often very hard to to think about and to accept. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to simply say, hmm. well, I don't have to think about that. I don't have to pay attention to that because it's not real. It did not happen in the world. It's simply a fabrication. Okay, that makes sense. So what you're saying is that perhaps for some people, what's happening in the world is too overwhelming. I think so very much. And that's a theme, too, in conspiracy um, theory culture, essentially, where um, often the conspiracy itself will be a, um, a reaction to something that is really hard in the world, um, you know, whatever it might be. And the conspiracy offers um, a, a kind of coherence to the world. It offers a narrative. It offers the reassurance that the world can be made uh, legible in a lot right. of ways. And, it, and there is something very reassuring about that. It offers a solution to them. Mm, yes, exactly. So, Megan, what happens when you write about this? <laughs> well, one of the things that actually um, impelled the story itself was, in fact, some of the hate mail that I get. That's what I journalist. thought, yeah. I, exactly, yep. Um, and, and, and just the utter, um, just, I mean, I will say the cruelty of some of it, you know, that, that people would decide to send these horrible messages to someone that they don't know who's, you know, who wrote, wrote something that they don't like, that they don't agree with. And one of the things that I noticed was when I replied to those emails um, and said, you know, could you explain a little bit more why I am such a terrible person? Um, and when I did that, they would sometimes act surprised and then would be so much nicer. And sometimes we would actually have a conversation. And just that idea that they came into the interaction, A, feeling entitled to send that email in the first place, that I would assume they would not feel entitled to say to me in person. Um, but the fact that they really did seem shocked that there was a 
human person on the other end of, of their message. Um, I found just very resonant and it's something that stuck with me for a long time and really was kind of the, the emotional foundation of, of, of this piece. Right. I could see how social media is really, you know, this is the Instagram thing, right? Where we're putting out one thing in the world when we find out it's not that, it's not as we see people are, oh, oh, okay, that's not what it is. And they become completely different people. I've had the same thing happen to me. <laughs> yes. No, exactly. I think that's a very common um, phenomenon among, among journalists and many other people too, where it's so easy, I think, just to see each other not as people, but as tropes, effectively. You know, the same idea of, of the crisis actors, but applied to other people in the world, where there is kind of a coherence to say to yourself, well, that person is a journalist, and they write things or say things I don't like, therefore, they are just a character. And, and there is, I, I very much recognize something very assuring about that. But then to have that disrupted by the character actually writing back to you and saying, yeah. actually, no, I, I am real. I'm sorry to tell you. It's so fascinating. That would be very disconcerting. Yeah. yeah. You use the word character. That's such a good way to put it because now when you see people videotaping everything too, right, they're recording everything and it almost makes everybody yeah. a character in some reality show. Exactly right. I think that's so true. And I would say too, that we are, I think, conditioned to understand that people that we see through screens, you know, usually those are fictional people. Usually those are people in movies who are inventions or, you know, sitcoms, TV shows, that kind of thing. And one of the challenges of this moment is to sort of reorient our thinking um, to the fact that no, also the people that we experience through screens are real, <laughs> whether yeah. it's reality shows, whether it's Instagram, any of those. Oh, Megan, so fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's Megan Garber, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine. She's been writing about the metaverse as as if we were already in it. And she makes some excellent points. And, you know, as she was talking, I was thinking back to, was it last week, the week before, when basketball superstar LeBron James broke the all-time scoring record. And I don't know if you saw the picture of that lot, the shot that he took at the moment that he was about to break the record. And it was a shot of him. And then in the background, it was everybody, you know, in the crowd and every single person except for one was holding up a camera, recording the situation. And I remember thinking at that moment, well, how many of them were actually enjoying the moment, like watching it with their own eyes? They weren't. They were all watching it through their screens except for that one person. It was an older gentleman sitting in the front row. I found out later that was um, Phil Knight, the CEO, you know, the old CEO of, of Nike, who was just sitting there, no phone, no nothing, enjoying it in person. But I thought every other person is just watching it through their phones, not being there in the moment to experience history. No, no, they have to record it because that's how they know they were actually there for such an important moment. So Megan's um, theory there is, is really fascinating. Find a way in, simi at cknw.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.